When we look out at the universe, in every direction that we look at, whether we look near, far, at intermediate distances, or even at the most extreme distances of all, there's always stuff out there to see. Stars within our own Milky Way, sure, but beyond the Milky Way and the local group, there are galaxies everywhere in all directions and at all distances from us, as far back as we've ever been able to see. But what were the earliest galaxies like? The way galaxies are today is not the way that they've always been. The universe evolves throughout time. The ingredients within it change, and the properties of stars and galaxies also evolve over time. What is the early universe like? What were galaxies like early on, and how have they changed over cosmic time? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. The universe as we understand it has changed remarkably from the early stages of the hot Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago up through the present day. Back when things first started off, there were no stars, there were no galaxies, and the universe was filled not with the rich variety of elements we have today, but just hydrogen, helium, and a tiny, tiny bit of lithium and nothing else for tens or even hundreds of millions of years before the first stars formed. But now, thanks to new advanced telescopes, and in particular, the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, we're learning more about these distant objects than ever before. And here to help us learn about them, I'm so pleased to welcome to the program Professor Jehan Kartaltepe. Jehan is a professor and director of the Laboratory for Multi-Wavelength Astrophysics at the Rochester Institute of Technology and one of the members of the Sears collaboration that specializes in these early, intermediate, and extremely ultra-distant galaxies in the universe. Jehan, I'm so pleased to have you here, and welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, so let's get right into this, because there's so much to talk about. If I had come to you just two years ago, before the JWST had ever begun operations, had ever gone up into space. And I had said, tell me about the earliest galaxies we've ever discovered. Tell me about what the early universe was like as far as the galaxies within it go. What would you have been able to tell me? And how has that picture started to change? over the past two years? Yeah, so two years ago, before before we had JWST, most of our knowledge about the very early universe came from Hubble. And Hubble's really been a workhorse for us for many, many years and has taught us a lot of things about galaxies. And so Hubble can tell us about the very early universe uh, just due to the nature of the finite speed of light. So when we look at really distant galaxies, it takes an incredibly long time for that light to reach us. 
So we're actually seeing those galaxies as they were in the past. And over its many years of operation, Hubble has pushed our distance record further and further away and allowed us to look further and further back in time. Um, but, you know, Hubble isn't incredibly sensitive, so it's only able to detect the brightest things, sort of the extreme things in the very early universe. And so, you know, there have been small handfuls of objects that people found in the distant universe, and we couldn't say very much about them besides count them. You know, oh, there's one there, there's one there, there's one here, uh, but they're the brightest things, the extreme things. And in an image, they just look like a tiny little smudge, a tiny little dot. So we couldn't say very much about their structure or anything else about their composition. Um, and all of that has completely changed now. I mean, that's that's so wonderful because I have always been frustrated with the limits of Hubble. You know, Hubble launched when I was in middle school and, you know, sure, it was great. It was a great observatory. It's still a great observatory for many different aspects of astronomy, including ultraviolet and optical astronomy. It's still the best in and out of this world that we have over many different types of observations we'd make. But for looking at these ultra-distant objects, it's always bothered me that Hubble's limited by two facts about our universe. One is that light redshifts, or its wavelength stretches as it travels through the expanding universe. And Hubble, wonderful though it is, can't really see anything that's had its wavelength stretched to a little more than two microns, or about three times the maximum wavelength that visible light achieves to human eyes. Um, and that's just because Hubble is warm. Hubble is always in direct sunlight, even though it has a reflective coating on its outside, it still never drops below about 200 Kelvin, which is pretty warm in space and prevents us from seeing longer wavelengths than that. And we also have this problem that because what Hubble is so sensitive to is light that's emitted in the ultraviolet and optical parts of the spectrum, Hubble runs into this problem that before a certain point, beyond about, oh, I would say... We can look far, far back, but corresponding to about a redshift of six or an age of the universe of about 550 million years, when we look before that, there are still neutral atoms, these light-blocking neutral atoms that are in the way of our observations. So Hubble has to contend with, well, I can only see out to this relatively modest wavelength range, and oh, and where the most numerous objects in the distant universe are, I actually have this light-blocking matter that, that's blocking the type of light I'm sensitive to. Uh, that's been a severe limitation for Hubble. With JWST, however, we don't have those same limits anymore, do we? No, we certainly don't. You know, one of the exciting things about JWST is that it's optimized to work in the infrared part of the spectrum. And so we're looking at a part of the spectrum where those stretched wavelengths that are now in the infrared, we can actually see them. So when we observe a very distant galaxy, we are observing the light that is in the visible part of the spectrum that we would normally see in, in the visible for nearby galaxies. We're observing that light 
in the infrared. And so we can see, you know, galaxies in the distant universe in a way that's comparable to what we see nearby with Hubble. I think one of the remarkable things about JWST, and this is maybe not remarkable to you because it's such a brute force thing, uh, is how much larger it is than Hubble. You know, we I've seen the pictures where Hubble's primary mirror is about 2.4 meters in diameter, whereas JWST's is more like 6.5 meters in diameter. But that difference, even though it's less than a factor of three in diameter, that translates to about a factor of seven in terms of what we call light gathering power. So we've got better resolution, we can see more light. What does that translate into as far as the types of objects and the types of galaxies JWST can see compared to what Hubble was able to see? Yeah, so basically because JWST can capture more light than Hubble, it lets us see things that are a lot fainter. And that helps us in two ways, right? Those things that are fainter can be more distant, so we can see more distant things, but we can also see things that are just less luminous at the same distance. So as I mentioned before with Hubble, we were only seeing sort of the bright, really extreme sources. Now we can push down and see things that are, that are not just the tip of the iceberg, things that are a bit more normal in terms of their luminosity. Yeah, I, I kind of liken it to, you know, if someone were studying humans and they were only sensitive to humans that were seven feet tall and above, you wouldn't get a very good idea of what the variety of humans were out here on planet Earth. And if you look out at the distant galaxies in the universe and you can only see the very few brightest galaxies, you're not really getting an accurate picture of what the universe was like back then, are you? No, that's right. That's a very good analogy, actually. Well, one of the things that I'm curious about is um, there was this idea that I had heard that said, if you really want to understand how the universe became transparent to all of the light in it, because early on, you know, you form neutral atoms and you don't have any stars at first. So those neutral atoms just hang out. And finally, you start forming stars. And so now you can kick electrons off of the nuclei that they're bound to and you can make some of it ionized. And an ionized region of your universe is great because that's transparent to ultraviolet invisible light now. That light that we're sensitive to seeing, light can travel through it. But if you don't have enough stars or if you don't have a sustained production of stars, those ions, those ion ionized nuclei and those electrons are going to find each other again and make neutral atoms again and block the light. So if I wanted to study how the universe makes that transition from when it was full of neutral atoms to when all of the atoms within it are now ionized and it's transparent to light, I can't do that just by studying the brightest galaxies, can I? Oh, no, you can't. I mean, you need, a, you need a really good sampling of the galaxies in the distant universe in order to understand that whole transition and what drove it. 
because it may have occurred around the brightest galaxies or the galaxies that were less bright might have had a really important role. And that's something that we just don't know. Well, you could say that's something we just don't know, but you know, I've I've read at least a bunch of theory papers that suggest uh, that it shouldn't be just the biggest, brightest ones that drive it. In fact, I've seen estimates that range from uh, somewhere between 80% and up to 95% claiming that in order to reionize the universe, the brightest galaxies are only responsible for a small fraction of the total amount of ultraviolet photons that you make, uh, between 5 and maybe 20%, and that the rest of it are all these large numbers of low-mass, low-luminosity, fainter galaxies that, to be honest, Hubble had never seen before. You're working with the Sears team uh, with JWST, which... Uh, I'm going to let you remind us of what the acronym for that is, but can you tell us uh, what you've been seeing with that data about what the populations of galaxies are that you're sensitive to out there and, and what this teaches us about what was actually present in the universe at these early times? So Sears is the Cosmic Evolution Early Release Science Survey. And what that means is that it was among the different surveys selected to be some of the first observations to be taken on the telescope. That's the, the early release science part of it. And the goal of surveys like Sears and the other ERS programs was to really test the observatory and put the telescope through its paces by using a number of the different instrument modes and just testing everything out and then making all of that data available to the public immediately so that as soon as JWST was taking data, the public could get their hands on data and start playing with it and seeing what the telescope was capable of and making their own discoveries. And so that was the basic idea. And I think that's really, that's really um, held through. A lot of the very first papers on galaxies in the early universe with JWST were done using Sears data. And some of the first things that we found is that there are a lot more of these uh, bright galaxies in the distant universe than we thought, right? Prior to the launch of JWST, we all had our ideas and our estimates uh, based on simulations. So we had predictions of how many such objects we might find in an area like Sears or in the various other surveys uh, that were being found. Um, and instead, what happened is that as soon as the data was available, papers started coming out very quickly and people were publishing on very high redshift galaxies and they weren't all the same ones. They were different galaxies in different surveys. And we just we just quickly realized there are more of these galaxies in the early universe than we thought. So there is something about our initial predictions that was a little bit off. Um, which is kind of fun, right? It made for a very exciting uh, period of time just when the data first came out because nobody expected there to be so many so quickly. And that's really both fun and also dangerous, right? Because from a science perspective, anytime you find something that doesn't line up with what you expected to find, that's really interesting because that means there's a chance to improve your understanding. Something needs to change. Either you haven't accounted for the right set of things in your models, or you made some simplifications that you can't make, 
or there's some sort of new physics that you haven't accounted for that needs to be accounted for, or perhaps something bigger is going on and you're actually on the cusp of a revolution that you're going to have to figure out at some point. But there's also this danger at the same time of communicating these early results to the public because a lot of times when you go out and you tell someone, hey, we found this thing that was a surprise and no one was expecting it, um, a lot of people will jump to the conclusion of, oh, well, that means everything that we had thought up until now must be wrong. And so how do you, how do you walk that line um, between getting excited about what, you know, gets thrown into doubt, what gets called into question, and also uh, what is still on solid enough footing that you say, look, like this is, this is maybe a case of reform, not revolution. Yeah, I, th I think it's important to keep the larger context in mind for these things. You know, the very early days were very exciting and there were a lot of new discoveries and papers being published. But you know, at the end of the day, when you look at the numbers and you see, okay, how many things are being found versus how many things were predicted, um, it's not some extreme difference, right? I know there was some initial press of, oh, cosmology is completely broken and the universe doesn't work the way we thought, um, but it actually wasn't that extreme. Instead, the models were kind of just on the edge of being able to predict what we were seeing. So it's the kind of thing that requires tweaking, you know, of, of our understanding of the models and of the simulations, but not, you know, a complete overhaul of all of physics. And so, yeah, communicating that is really important. And I think that context needs to be there. Yeah, it's, it, it's certainly a challenge. I, uh, I, I've, I've run into that challenge a whole lot in my line of work. Um, but one of the things that I thought was remarkable is when you start having these surveys like Sears, and, and not just limited to Sears, because there were many other galaxy surveys that are looking at significant regions of the sky with JWST's instruments for sufficiently long amounts of time in a sufficiently large number of different wavelength ranges that you can start to say, okay, we don't just have this one survey we're looking at. We also have the Jades survey. We also have uh, the Glass survey. We also have uh, Cosmos Web and Panoramic. And we are, you know, we have a lot of different teams that are collecting this data about the universe and, and it all goes public. Um, but when you look at your own data, and you look at the data from other groups, I think that's when you start to get a real, uh, I'll say you get an improved idea of what's out there as far as a, a census goes. And one of the things that I know greatly surprised me is that the way we had thought galaxies were going to grow up and evolved uh, as far as, oh, they're going to form stars and they're going to be this massive and bright this this early on. And then there'll be this gradual transition uh, as, as the dust within them gets blown away, uh, as star formation slows down in them. Uh, we had a lot of expectations on fronts like these. And I think the data 
um, was a surprise on a large number of those fronts. Can you can you tell us about some of the things that surprised you the most? I mean, I, I think the numbers of galaxies we're seeing was one surprise. I think another surprise is just the level of structure we're able to see. And maybe that shouldn't be a surprise, right? We, we know it's a big telescope. It has a finer resolution. We can see details. Um, but before JWST, these high redshift galaxies were, were tiny smudges, and we couldn't say very much about them. Now we can see details, right? We can see things that have asymmetries. They're, they're kind of you know lopsided in one way, or they might be interacting with another galaxy, or they look like they could have beginnings of a disk around them. And to me, that was the most exciting to be able to not just say, hey, there's, there's a galaxy and count it, but actually be able to say something about its physical structure, which tells us a lot about how it formed and where it's going in its evolution. This is really fascinating. And I'm going to ask you more questions about galaxy morphology or the shape of these galaxies uh, right after I acknowledge our sponsor. Today's episode of the Starts With a Bang podcast is brought to you by Avenues Online, the virtual campus of Avenues the World School. Avenues Online is an accredited tier one private school designed for students from toddler through 12th grade who want to pursue a world-class education freed from the constraints of a physical school. Learn alongside peers living on six continents and in more than 20 countries with a global faculty leading the way. Learn more at avenues.org slash SWAB. And now back to our show. So, Jehan, we expected that we would see, you know, maybe we should have expected we would be able to see what sort of structure exists within these galaxies. But I had understood that we expected that if we could see structure, we expected that structure to be I would call it irregular, that we expected these galaxies to not yet be settled down into the shapes we commonly recognize, things like disk galaxies with, with spiral structures starting to appear. Um, and instead, I think what we found is not just, oh, there were a large number of galaxies and many of them were brighter than we had anticipated, but pretty much all of them that we could resolve seem to show a lot of complex, what we would generally consider well-evolved structure, even at early times. Um, I know that was a surprise to me. What, what have you learned, or what would you say we've learned about galaxy growth, evolution, and shape from these early JWST results? I think we've learned that these objects aren't all the same. We're not seeing sort of a uniform set of structures where all these early galaxies look, look like they're the same. Instead, there's a pretty broad diversity of shapes. So some of them are really small and compact, and we can't resolve a lot of features in them. Um, there's a variety of reasons that could be. Um, some of them are irregular and kind of messy and lopsided. Uh, some of them are in pairs. You know, they're actually undergoing an interaction, which is which is pretty cool. 
Um, and then there are some that do appear to be a bit more a bit more regular, a bit more mature, like they might have a disc. And at the moment, it's still uncertain. You know, if you're looking at a picture of a galaxy and it looks like it could have a disc, it's a bit unclear whether that really is a disk. So when we talk about something that's a disk in the nearby universe, we're talking about a galaxy like our Milky Way that's a, a flat rotating structure. Um, and depending on the angle we look at it, we either see it face on and we see something very round with the spiral arm structure, um, or we see it edge on and it just looks kind of elongated. And when we look at these types of structures in the distant universe, it's not always clear what we're seeing or what our, our vantage point is, what our angle is. So a lot of these objects look like they're extended and they could be a disk. Um, but there are some recent studies uh, based on modeling their shapes that are finding that instead of disks, maybe some of these things are just what we call um, prolate ellipsoids. They're basically just squashed, squashed elliptical shaped galaxies and they just look really extended. And it's hard to tell, you know, visually by looking at an image which of these things it is. What we would really need in order to, to sort of be more definitive um, is what we call kinematics or information about the actual velocity in order to determine if the structure is actually rotating the way a galaxy disk is rotating. And that's something that, that we don't know yet, but it's a big open question. But this should be something that JWST will be able to help answer uh, because with its instrument suite, if we then went back at some of these galaxies that we've identified, can't we go to the various parts of the galaxy that we see and do spectroscopic studies on individual parts of this galaxy with enough, you know, telescope time that with JWST's instruments, we could maybe even start to measure what does this galaxy's rotation profile look like? Is that something that you think is within reach of the observatory's capabilities? Yes, that is definitely something that is in reach. Uh, and I think things that something that people are planning to do or proposing to do, um, measuring this type of rotation might be really difficult for the, the very most distant galaxies. You know, there's a wide range of galaxies that are not at very extreme distances. They're at what we used to think of as great distances, but are now pretty moderate for JWST. Uh, but they're nearby enough that we can study them in great detail with the spectroscopic instruments on JWST. And that can give us information about their velocity so we can determine if they are rotating and you know what the orbits of their stars are like. And that'll give us a little bit of information about this question. You know, one of the things that I was really surprised by, um, and I think some astronomers were also surprised by this, is even with the most distant galaxies we found, even with the ones at the greatest distance from us that formed at the earliest times, um, they're not pristine, right? These are not galaxies that are forming stars for the first time, where we see their stars are only made out of hydrogen and helium. Every galaxy that we've looked at in enough detail shows evidence that, oh no, there's oxygen and carbon and plenty of like large quantities of heavy elements present within them. And sure, some of these galaxies look intrinsically bluer uh, or with more of their light weighted towards intrinsically ultraviolet short wavelengths than the stars we have today. But 
none of these appear to be completely pristine galaxies. In other words, from what JWST is seeing, even with the earliest, whether they're bright or faint galaxies that it sees, we're not seeing the very first generation of stars. These are populations of stars. These are objects that have already had a chance to evolve. Yeah, so with JWST's spectroscopy, we're able to study the chemical composition of these galaxies. And you're right, these are galaxies that have already evolved. They are not the first generation of stars, right? The first generation of stars have been made up completely of hydrogen and helium and maybe trace amounts of lithium um, and would have very different properties. These aren't those. These have come from uh, subsequent generations of stars that have already been enriched uh, with some amount of the heavy elements, which we can see as signatures in their spectra. You know, during the big press release event that they had last summer to highlight, you know, the very first data. Uh, of course, all of the images were spectacular. But the thing that shocked me the most, and the thing that made me gasp, was when they showed that first spectrum. It's of a Redshift Eight galaxy, and there were just lines everywhere. It looked like it could have been a spectrum of a galaxy nearby, right? There were oxygen lines. There were, yeah, it was just an incredibly impressive spectrum to see. Um, but that's what we're seeing from spectra so far. We're seeing sort of incredible uh, signatures of these heavier elements that have already formed. So that means if we want to see those really pristine stars, that first generation, we'd have to look even further back than we've been able to so far. You know, I'm I'm going to apologize to my listeners right now because uh, normally on this podcast I try to keep things at a uh, at a level where I think people without experience in the field of astronomy can access them. But what I want to talk about right now is such a detail that even though I know this is really getting into the weeds, I I want to do it anyway. There was a period that ended last year when the JWST data first started coming in, where for maybe the 10 or 15 years prior to this, when we said, we're doing spectroscopy on this galaxy, and this galaxy's distance uh, is spectroscopically confirmed, we weren't doing things like you would normally think of spectroscopy being. Spectroscopy is this science of I'm taking all of the light from an object, from a source, and I'm breaking it up into its individual wavelength components. And what I hope to be able to do from this is I can identify where there are these spikes in the spectrum, which correspond to emission lines, and these dips in the spectrum, which correspond to absorption lines. And if I know what my different atoms and molecules and ions, what exact frequencies and wavelengths they emit and absorb at, and then I know how the universe has expanded, I could look at these different lines and say, oh, this is how distant this object is. This is how far away it is. This is how fast it's receding from us, right? That's what we think of when we say, I'm doing spectroscopy on this. But with Hubble's limited wavelength range for the most distant objects of all, we were basing this on one line, one feature called the Lyman break, which is basically where you have that strongest transition in hydrogen, where something drops 
from the n equals 2 to the n equals 1 state, from that first excited state to the ground state. That would be an emission line, but what we typically see is, oh, well, there's this hydrogen in front of it, and that blocks the light. So you see a break in the spectrum, and that's why we call it the Lyman break. I was outraged when I learned Oh yeah, we're saying things are spectroscopically confirmed because we see the Lyman break and no other lines. And yet here we are in the JWST era, and when they did that first release of images and science data, uh, that big galaxy cluster that they took that image of, SMAX 0723, they took as part of that, with that first science release, they took the spectrum of some galaxies in that field, including, as you noted, one source that was at a redshift of eight, which, by the way, would have made it the third most distant object ever discovered at that time. And you could not only see, oh yeah, they have the Lyman break in there. They had multiple hydrogen lines. They had oxygen lines. You could see several elements and several lines in there. And I thought to myself, wow, we've been basically cheating as much as we can without disbelieving ourselves up until this point. And now, with the JWST data and the quality of this data we're getting, we can finally go back to doing spectroscopy, what I consider the way it was meant to be done. What, what do you think about that? I think it's a completely different world. And it's, it's sort of funny, I think, for people who have been working in the high redshift science game for a long time and and trying to use amazing telescopes like Keck and the VLT, et cetera, to try to get spectra of these distant galaxies just to look for that one line, right, that Lyman alpha, and hope you see it and hope that, okay, well, maybe it's Lyman alpha and not something else, and you just don't have access to any other lines because they're just redshifted so far out. Now, with spectra in the infrared from JWST, it's a completely different game. And you can do the same kind of science and the same kind of detailed analysis with the spectroscopy that people have been doing in the nearby universe. And so now my colleagues look at these spectra and they say, oh, my gosh, I don't even know what to do with all these lines. There's so many of them. Um, a, a, whole new, a whole new world has opened up with what you can do. I mean, doesn't this just further make the case for the importance of interdisciplinary astronomy to sort of say, look, like n no one can be an expert in all these different subfields of astronomy and astrophysics. But now that we have, you know, better data, data that basically takes what was previously regarded as high redshift uh, now, if we see something at that same redshift, we say, oh, no, we're going to be using what we used to use for intermediate or even low redshift. And what's now at intermediate redshift to us, uh, we're, we can use like the low redshift or nearby universe techniques to us. And it's really only the absolute most distant, faintest galaxies that we have to say, okay, we're we're really just going to focus on looking for that Lyman break. Um, I think it's 
it's really more of an opportunity than anything to sort of bring together these different techniques that used to be siloed in astronomy and say, no, like now, now it's time for people who study these high redshift, these ultra distant galaxies to learn these techniques that they didn't need to learn before. And the lines have really blurred now between what what people work on and what they consider their expertise to be. You know, there's kind of a joke that now everybody's a high redshift astronomer, right? Because even people who weren't that interested in high redshift galaxies, well, now it's exciting because you can learn all of this interesting physics and apply some of the same techniques. And people who did work on high redshift now have to learn more about the low redshift universe because they have to use those techniques. And people that, you know, weren't very interested in black holes suddenly are very interested in black holes. And it's just really funny that like, everybody's science now overlaps in a way that it really didn't before. Yeah. And certainly uh, the JWST observations are, are f compelling us to look at this. You know, I, I know a lot of people who were thinking that, okay, um, at some point we're going to see what we call a galaxy quasar transition where we're going to see like, okay, like, yeah, you had this dusty star forming galaxy uh, that forms all its stars in a burst, but then you're eventually going to form enough stars that you're going to have what we call feedback, where it basically injects too much energy into the surrounding material for you to keep forming stars, and it blows this stuff away, and then you get to actually see a dust-free you know, system over there. And maybe if it has an active black hole that's feeding, it's going to inject these energetic jets out into the universe that we'll finally be able to observe. And one of the things that surprised me is actually uh, this line between quasar and galaxy. Um, it's way blurrier than you would have ever thought beforehand. I think, you know, it's just a whole list of surprises <laughs> that we found. And that is one of the other surprises is that looking in these distant galaxies, we're seeing more active black holes than I think people really expected. Prior to JWST, there were a lot of discoveries of these really luminous, really extreme quasars. So they're the, the most active black holes that are growing the most, and they're so incredibly bright, you can see them from really great distances. And so those were known to exist pretty far away. But now with JWST, we're able to see you know things like those, but also the less luminous, more normal black holes that are growing. And so we're, we are finally going to be able to start building a census of these black holes and not just seeing the extreme ones, but also the more normal ones and try to understand how they grew up and how they became so massive at such an early point in the universe's history. I mean, and this is, this is sort of that tension we all have because so many of us are always interested in the extremophiles, right? We're interested in like, what are the what are the most extreme objects that we see? Where's the most massive black hole? What's the brightest early galaxy that we see? What's the absolute most distant galaxy we've ever discovered and, and things like that? But those extremes, as, as fun and compelling as they are, they don't necessarily teach us how the majority of the universe evolves and grows up. You know, for something like like us... Uh, 
we live in the Milky Way. The Milky Way is a large galaxy, but it's not a remarkable galaxy. Uh, it's not the most massive galaxy in our vicinity. We're not even the most massive galaxy in our local group, and our local group is peanuts. It's a it's a run of the mill nothing group. Uh, we can look nearby at like the Leo group and be like, oh, that group is more massive, and that's not even going to a big galaxy cluster like Virgo. So when we're talking about how the universe grows up, shouldn't it be these more modest, unremarkable objects that we ought to be studying if we want to know where we came from, from a cosmic perspective? Yeah, the more modest objects tell us a lot more about how ordinary day-to-day -day, you know, galaxies came to be, like our own. The extreme tell us something else, right? They tell us, you know, sort of the limits of, of what we know. And one of the reasons these really luminous quasars have been such a mystery is that they have to have really massive black holes. And those black holes had to be that massive already in an early time period. And so if you start to rewind the clock, that starts to pose some problems of how did they get so massive so quickly, even if they're just the tip of the iceberg. You had to have black holes form really early on in the universe and grow extremely rapidly. So the extreme systems kind of test, test the edge of what we know about physics in a way. And the more moderate systems tell us a lot more about how galaxies like our own form. Yeah, and I, I think both of those are important because we, we do, we have a model for how the universe came into existence, what its properties were like, and because we think we understand the laws of physics and the raw ingredients that go into making the universe, we, we hope to come up with a picture where everything adds up. And, you know, you're right there on the cutting edge seeing, boy, it's a surprise that these massive black holes with these properties exist so early. Boy, it's a surprise that uh, we see so many galaxies that appear to be so evolved from such early stages. Wow, it's a surprise to see galaxies that are this bright this early on. When you, when you come up with uh, surprises like that, things that defy your initial, maybe naive expectations. Um, how do you approach that? How do you attempt to reconcile what you expected with the observed surprises that you encounter? So when you observe surprises like this that confront your expectations, then that means you have to go back and rethink those expectations a little bit. And so all of these surprises have really been an opportunity to understand our physical models and what's missing in them in order to explain the things that we're actually observing. You know, the fact that we're seeing massive black holes already. Well, that means that there's something about the physics in the early universe that can produce those massive black holes. And so we need to go back to our models to understand why that is. Same with how galaxies can become so bright so early compared to what our expectations were. Well, there's something about the process of stars forming in the early universe and how efficiently those stars form uh, that is not currently 
well explained by our models. So there's a little bit of going back to the drawing board and tweaking our models and our physical understanding to try to explain these observations. You know, I know of at least three things that uh, people have said, hey, this is important and we haven't been including these aspects uh, when it came to some of these surprises. I know that one of them was they said, well, most of the cosmological simulations that we've run to sort of predict what we expect to exist in the early universe, uh, they've been done for relatively large volumes of the universe, which means because of the limits of computing power, they've only been done at what I would call a, a medium resolution. They haven't been done at the absolute highest resolution. Uh, and it turns out that when you said, well, we do have higher resolution simulations, and when we look at what they predict, it seems like it's actually the rarest areas that started out just a little denser than the cosmic average. Um, things that aren't these, you know, one sigma fluctuations away from the mean where you get a lot of them, but like three, four, five sigma fluctuations, which we, we get a few of those in the universe, that really can be incredibly useful for explaining many of these most extreme objects that we see. I saw another paper that argued, well, a lot of what we're seeing with these brightest galaxies that we're seeing, we're operating under the same assumptions we use today, where light traces mass, where if you see something that's a certain brightness, it's going to tell you that there's a certain amount of matter in there that corresponds to that. But if what you're seeing is a burst of star formation happening in the galaxy, then the light doesn't need to be tracing mass. You can get an enhancement over that. And if you account for that, that can then help you sort of reconcile this with the observations. And one last thing that I heard about is people said, you know, we had all these expectations for how JWST was going to perform based on things that we calculated and things that have happened with observatories previously. And it turns out that because JWST was actually kept cleaner with superior clean room technology to any other observatory we've ever built and launched into space, it's actually performing much better than we had expected the optics would perform. I'm curious which of these three factors, if any, uh, you think are, are maybe important for people to consider when they start thinking about, oh, this thing looks too big, too massive, too bright, etc., for what we were expecting to see. All of the above in some ways. I mean, the last one is definitely true that the observatory is performing much better than we initially expected. I think all of that's somewhat accounted for in the measurements, right? You, we're able to see fainter than we thought we could have, but that's, that's okay. We're measuring how faint things are and going from there. Um, but I, the other points you raised are very important considerations for why some of our prior expectations might be a little bit off. Um, so the idea that star formation happens in bursts 
and we're just sort of capturing a snapshot in time when we take images is an important thing to keep into account. Um, the other big one is what we call cosmic variance, right? Just depending on where you look in the sky, you might happen to hit regions that have more galaxies and regions that have fewer galaxies. And you really need to start to cover large areas of the sky, uh, like the Cosmos Web Survey is going to do, um, in order to get sort of a more complete picture of what the universe is like on larger scales at these early times. And, and I just want to be clear, when you talk about larger surveys and larger areas of the sky, uh, to give people some perspective, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope has been operational for approximately uh, 33 years now. And in all the time that Hubble has been operational, uh, it has imaged less than 1% of the entire sky. So you know, that's that's cumulatively taking everywhere it's ever looked and adding it all up. It's imaged less than 1% of the entire sky. When we're talking about, oh, the JWST is taking a large area survey like Cosmos Web, I think, I think Cosmos Web is planned to be something like a quarter of a square degree. And that's enormous. That's enormous compared to JWST's field of view. But also, there are something like 40,000 square degrees over the entire sky. So we are talking about getting a larger sample. Um, and this corresponds to a large volume of the actual universe. But we're still just talking about like, tiny fractions of the sky, aren't we? Oh, yes. In the end, it's still a teeny tiny fraction of the entire sky. Um, I like to think of, of the cosmos web field relative to the size of the full moon, because people are used to what the full moon looks like on the sky. Um, the full moon is is half a degree across. Um, the cosmos web survey is covering an area a little bit more than half a square degree. And so that's about nine full moons in size. So it's, it's larger than any of the other surveys that are going to be done. And it's, you know, larger than the full moon, if you can visualize that, but it's still overall, you know, the entire sky, it's a very small fraction. Yeah, but this is, this is useful for something that I think a lot of people don't appreciate, right? When, when people think about the most iconic Hubble images, uh, they often think about things like the Hubble deep field or ultra deep field or extreme deep field, where, where you took your telescope and you just pointed it at the same region of sky over and over again with different wavelength filters on it uh, to try and tease out as many details as possible from within this narrow, narrow region of the sky. We, we often call it like postage stamp size because you can imagine putting a postage stamp a large distance away from you and saying like, yeah, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at a region just like this over and over. Cosmos Web isn't going to do that. Cosmos Web, what it's doing instead is it's actually taking a large number of different pointings that are adjacent to one another so it can sort of stitch together a, a deep but not as deep view as, say, an ultra or extreme deep field. Uh, but its goal is to get a wider field view so you can sort of 
maybe not see the faintest objects or the most distant objects of all, but what you can do is you can get an outstanding survey or census of these intermediate objects, right? The, the intermediate galaxies, the regular galaxies out to what, what used to be high redshift just two or three years ago, uh, that you can get the brightest objects at what is high redshift in the JWST era. And if there's anything that happens to be relatively nearby in the universe, you can get an exquisite view of that, plus whatever happens to be lurking behind it. I'm going to say there's two other large benefits to covering a large area. Uh, one is that you're more likely to find the things that turn out to be rare. And that can be these really bright, extreme things, right? If you're just covering a larger area, you're more likely to happen across those even at really far distances. So in Cosmos Web, we've already found candidates that are at redshifts at 10, 11, which are much higher than we were able to find before uh, because they're so extremely bright and spread out over the sky. The other huge advantage is that you can find galaxies and place them in their context relative to the large scale structure of galaxies around them. So instead of just, hey, there's a galaxy here, we can say, hey, there's a group of galaxies here, or this galaxy happens to be in a region that's relatively empty. And that tells us a lot more about how those first galaxies formed and grew together, and whether that process of ionizing the universe that we talked about earlier is dependent on the overall environment that galaxies are in. Yeah, that's that's a huge question, and I'm, I'm so pleased you brought that up, because um, we can't treat these objects like they're living in isolation. Um, a lot of the history of the universe uh, is something that I think is counterintuitive to a lot of people. You know, we we sort of look out and think like, oh, look, there's stuff everywhere. But that stuff changes remarkably over time. One of the findings that surprised me with JWST is... Um, we had these models for how star formation should evolve over cosmic history. And we've learned that, okay, where we are now, 13.8 billion years after the hot Big Bang, star formation is only at a trickle compared to what it was in its heyday, that we're forming only maybe 3 to 5% the rate of new stars that we were forming, you know, 10 or 11 billion years ago when star formation reached its peak. But what we had expected to find was, well, as we look to greater and greater distances, we should see a steep rise in star formation, right? That that maybe at a redshift of 12 or 15, there should be very little. And then as we come closer, maybe more to a redshift of three. So in time, going from when the universe was maybe 300 million years old to when the universe is maybe two or three billion years old, we expected star formation to increase very steeply. And instead, what we find with JWST is actually it looks like the star formation rate back 300 million years after the Big Bang, um, it was already pretty high. And yeah, it's continued to rise, but that rise is a lot shallower 
than we were expecting because it was bigger early on than we expected. And I don't think that's that's the type of thing that uh, is currently being appreciated enough, uh, at least in the general public, uh, even though maybe astronomers are appreciating this a whole lot. If this is what we're looking at when it comes to the star formation rate, uh, was this a surprise to you? And if so, what is what is this teaching us about, you know, how the universe grew up? Yeah, I think, you know, prior to JWST, we knew very little about the star formation rates at these great distances. And JWST is helping us. It still can't give us a complete picture. I think a lot of other facilities are going to help here as well. So uh, one example is ALMA, the, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array in Chile. So this operates in the submillimeter part of the spectrum. And so that really helps us to nail down star formation that's obscured, meaning the light would otherwise be absorbed by dust in the visible part of the spectrum. So the combination of telescopes like JWST and the ALMA array, I think, will really help us to answer this question of, of that ramp up of the star formation rates in the early universe. You know, I I want to ask you about maybe a, a little bigger picture question here. Um, JWST has been phenomenal and continues to be phenomenal and will be for a long time into the future at, you know, just being a, a giant leap forward for astronomy. We we had ideas, we had theories for what we were going to see. Uh, and now that we actually have data for what's out there and we're collecting more of it, um, we got answers to some of the questions we knew that we needed to ask, but we also saw an enormous number of surprises. And we're still seeing these surprises and we're still trying to make sense of many of these surprises. Um, I think that this is an indication that maybe when it comes to astronomy, uh, any aspect, which means looking in any wavelength range, looking with any class of observations you'd want to make, uh, this shows me what sort of payoff you get when you're willing to invest in making that next leap into the unknown of what what I'll call discovery space. If you're looking at resolutions, in wavelengths, at areas, at volumes of the universe uh, that far surpass anything you've ever seen before, um, not only are you going to answer questions that you knew you had, but you're also going to be surprised and allow yourself to be surprised by what might be out there in the universe that you haven't even thought to look for yet. Um, one of my recent podcast guests impressed on me that one of the problems with the field of astronomy and astrophysics is that it isn't ambitious enough. And I would say that JWST has been the most ambitious space telescope slash observatory that we've ever launched. The payoff that we're seeing from it is enormous. Do you think that there that that the success of JWST should spur us? to try and pursue these more ambitious, revolutionary observatories 
even more than we currently do as a field? I think that would be amazing if it did. I mean, I think the ambitions are there, the designs are there, there's the interest. Uh, the hard thing is the funding. You know, the, the realistic nature of funding for science is that building something like JWST was an incredible challenge. And to do something like that, you know, for the next generation is going to become even harder. And so it will require, you know, Congress really getting excited about what is possible to do with a facility like this in the future um, to increase the funding that we have for astronomy. Yeah, I, I've long been an advocate of increasing the funding for, for all sorts of scientific endeavors in, in this country and in the world. Um, because one of the other things I've really come to appreciate about science in general and astronomy astrophysics in particular is how important international collaboration is you know we have all sorts of artificial national and governmental borders that are put up in this world but when it comes to the knowledge and benefits that are reaped by humanity i mean taking these giant leaps into the cosmic unknown and seeing what's out there and developing the technologies that let us measure what's out there these are endeavors that benefit everyone and i would i would love to you know help create a world where this isn't subject to the whims of what congress wants to fund but rather where we recognize this is this is a key investment that allows humanity to progress as a species. Um, do you think there's any chance that something like that could happen in our lifetimes? I think there is a chance. It just requires the will of people behind it <laughs> to fund things like that. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for your for your honest answer there. Coming back into the realm of, of astronomy and what we're finding, if I said... I want to look out at the universe today and see what kinds of galaxies are out there. You know, the majority of galaxies that are going to find that I'm going to find fall into two categories. There are the spiral disk galaxies like our own, and then there are there are the giant elliptical galaxies. Um things like Messier 87 at the core of the Virgo cluster whose black hole we famously imaged with the Event Horizon telescope. Um what we see though is these galaxies aren't spirals and ellipticals in equal ratios everywhere we looked. The majority of what we call field galaxies or galaxies that are relatively isolated or in small groups um they're disk galaxies they're spiral like galaxies whereas if we look close to the center of a rich cluster of galaxies uh, we see a far greater percentage of giant elliptical galaxies and and fewer gas-rich spiral galaxies. When you talk about doing a large area survey of the early universe or the intermediate universe or, or basically the universe as it was in general when it's younger than it is now, um, what do you hope to learn about the shape of galaxies, the morphology of galaxies, as a function of not only cosmic time, 
but but as a function of clustering and how rich and densely clustered things are. That relationship you mentioned where galaxies in clusters tend to have the more elliptical shape and those that are the field isolated galaxies are more disc-like in shape. Uh, that wasn't always the case, right? That had to be put into place. And if you rewind the clock and you look further back in time, right, those clusters had to form at some point and the galaxies in them had to grow their stars. Um, and at one point in time, were more disc-like. And so one of the big questions is, you know, how did these clusters form, right? We call these baby clusters, proto-clusters in formation. And a large survey, you know, like Cosmos Web will be able to find proto-clusters at a wide range of distances and compare the galaxies in them to the ones that are more isolated to try to see when this relationship was put into place. Um, along with that, right, we want to be able to study how those elliptical galaxies form, right? Some of those massive ellipticals are thought to have formed from the merger of two disk galaxies. So when the two disk galaxies interact with each other, the orbits of the stars that are rotating in a, in a flat disk uh, can be completely disrupted so that you no longer have that disk. And when the two galaxies actually coalesce and merge into a single one, they form something that's more elliptical in shape and the orbits of all the stars are randomized. And so that's one of the ways that those ellipticals are thought, thought to grow, which means um, mergers might be one responsible process in these kinds of environments. But you also have these really giant ellipticals in the centers of clusters that grow more slowly by sort of sl slowly consuming other galaxies in their vicinity um, as they grow. And so these types of processes are things that we can track over time by looking at galaxies in different environments. So are you telling me that I would expect that as I looked to earlier and earlier times in the universe, I wouldn't just expect to find galaxies that are lower in mass and maybe forming stars at a higher rate compared to galaxies today because they were younger and less evolved and they had less time to draw more material into them. Um, are you also telling me that if I look to earlier and earlier times, I would maybe expect there to be a greater number of galaxies in the universe at earlier times compared to the galaxies that we have today because they have, because they're going to attract each other and merge together over time. And so this is going to cause the mass of your average galaxy to increase while at the same time causing the number of galaxies to decrease over time. Right. Both of these things are true, right? Galaxies are growing and they're, they're growing in mass for in a number of different ways, right? They're growing in mass because they're forming stars on their own, right? They're turning some of their gas into stars, but they're also growing because of the merger between objects. And so where you once had two, now you have one that's bigger. So they can get more massive that way, um, which means you have fewer of the smaller galaxies. Um, so both of, both of those things are definitely true. I, I was very surprised uh, when I saw, and this, this may have been Sears or it may have been a different um, 
a different collaboration, but I know a number of proto-clusters, as you called them, or these very early galaxy groups or clusters that, that appear to still be in the stage of formation uh, have been found in these surveys, that some of them are at a redshift of five or so, which corresponds to the universe being just about one billion years old. And some of them are, I think, I think the most distant one is at a redshift of around eight or eight point something even, which is just remarkably early. That that corresponds to, I think, the universe being only about five or six hundred million years old. Um, is is this also a puzzle? Are we seeing galaxy clusters that that are forming earlier than we ever anticipated galaxies would begin to group together? So I don't think that's a puzzle. The seeds of galaxy clusters were put in place right after the Big Bang. So what, you know, the... You know, right after the Big Bang, the whole galaxy, oh, let me say that again, right after the Big Bang, the whole universe was uniform in distribution, right? There were particles uniformly distributed, but there were teeny tiny overdensities, which means just by chance you had a couple of particles that were closer together in some parts of space than in other parts of space. And as the universe expanded, those little overdensities grew due to gravity, right? So those two particles that were happened to be a little bit closer together got even closer together and they attracted even more particles. And so those overdensities became the seeds for the first stars and the first galaxies and the first galaxy clusters. And so the whole nature of the universe is this sort of hierarchical structure where you form bigger things out of smaller things. And it's all driven by gravity. And it was all put in place by the very early conditions of the early universe. So when you start to find these over densities of galaxies at really early times, it's not a surprise, but you're just tracing the very beginnings of that structure. I see. So you're basically looking at a, you're basically looking at a seed uh, except instead of thinking it as, um, okay, well, seeds are all these very little things, uh, you're telling me that I have seeds that appear on different scales, that, sure, each individual star cluster that forms might have corresponded to a seed, but the way that these seeds are grouped together on scales that will lead it to form a galaxy or that because they're not grouped together as well, will only lead it to merge and form maybe 10 different smaller galaxies, or on even larger scales, that will lead to a collection of maybe 100 galaxies like are in our local group, versus where there are maybe thousands upon thousands of galaxies like in a rich galaxy cluster. Uh, you have to be very careful because these seeds aren't just like, oh, I have a seed on one scale and it's going to make new stars form here eventually. It's that I have seeds on all of these cosmic scales. So yeah, I'm going to get star clusters and galaxies and galaxy groups and galaxy clusters. And on even larger scales, these big, enormous filaments that intersect and make up a cosmic web. 
So you're saying these seeds are there always. And when we look to earlier and earlier times, we're just seeing them in an earlier stage of evolution than we see them today. That's right. That's exactly it. And you can you can see this through, you know, watching one of these videos of a cosmological simulation that, that simulates what the universe looks like in terms of its structure starting from the Big Bang through today. And it starts off very uniform and then you see little clumps of matter start to grow and then you eventually have these large scale structures and the filamentary cosmic web that forms as a result. And I'll, I'll just caution anyone who goes to Google these and looks them up and watches them. All of the videos that you will find have the expansion of the universe scaled out. So if you see one of these videos and you ask yourself, isn't the universe expanding? Shouldn't this stuff be getting less dense? The answer is yes, and it is, and that is not shown visually in any of the simulations that you're watching. So just, you know, watch or beware. That is a caveat that isn't included. Um, when we come then to uh, your work with Sears, um, has there been any object or set of objects of note that you think these are really interesting and everyone should know about them? Are there, are there lessons that you've learned from this data that you would like to highlight to our audience of listeners? I think the biggest lessons have come from the spectroscopy and the follow-up we've been able to do. So a lot of these you know, very distant galaxies we've been talking about are identified based on their colors. So just from the images, we look for things that are very red because their light has been shifted out of the visible into the into the infrared. And so we see them as really bright at the at the longer wavelengths and basically very faint or completely disappearing at the shorter wavelengths. And that's sort of the telltale signature to identify them. But there's other things that make galaxies red such as dust or older stars or the you know higher amounts of metals in the galaxies. And so if you really want to know that the galaxy is as far away as you think it is, you need to get a spectrum. And that's really the gold standard for knowing what its distance is. And so we were able to follow up you know a number of these candidates in Sears. Um, one of those galaxies was Maisie's galaxy, uh, one of the first high redshift uh, candidates we found. Uh, during the first summer after the data came. Um, another one was a famous Redshift 16 candidate that was published, you know, around the same time. Um, and and the Sears team and the team that published the Redshift 16 candidate kind of teamed up to propose for some follow-up observations where we got spectra of both of these galaxies and a number of other ones that were in the vicinity. And we were able to confirm that Maisie's galaxy was indeed at high redshift. Um, and we were able to, to show that the other Redshift candidate, Redshift 16 candidate, was not actually a Redshift 16, but instead it was at a Redshift of 5. And it just so happened to have spectral features that mimicked that very red color. Um, because it was so dusty and because it has a very bright um, hydrogen emission line that falls right in those redder bands that make it look like it's it's a really red high redshift galaxy um, and so i think those were some of the biggest lessons was how powerful the spectroscopy can be 
and how we can actually confirm some of the things that are high redshift, um, and then understanding these low redshift interlopers when they happen. So this is, I think, a very important lesson. Uh, normally what we do with, for instance, near TAM, which is the main imager on JWST, is we perform what's called photometry, where I will put a different set of filters that are sensitive to different sets of wavelengths of light in front of it when I image a certain region of my sky. And I will say, oh, look, well, if the lower, uh, if the shorter wavelength stuff, the stuff that corresponds more to visible light or, you know, things in the near part of the infrared regime, if I see no light there and then I see a big amount of light past a certain wavelength range, then I would say, oh, this is probably what a very distant galaxy looks like because all of its starlight has been shifted to very long wavelengths. But you you called them interlopers. I would go worse. I would call them imposters, right? These are things that photometrically are posing as high redshift galaxies. But like you said, if it's dusty, if it has emission lines, if it's made of intrinsically red stars, uh, all of that can cause it to look like a high redshift galaxy photometrically, uh, when in reality, it, it isn't. It's just either intrinsically red or intrinsically dusty, or it has this properties of absorption and emission that, that cause it to mimic what you would see this. But once you take the spectrum, this is, this is incontrovertible now. The spectrum tells you those details and allows you to tell the bona fides apart from the imposters. Um, do you think there's an important lesson here for people who get excited about what you, uh, I think, very scrupulously and correctly call these high redshift candidate galaxies. Uh, is there a lesson to be learned here about saying anything about these galaxies before a spectrum is taken of them? The biggest lesson is to consider all of the other possibilities. You know, some there are some possibilities that can be refuted based on other observations. So, you know, if it's really dusty, you might expect to detect it with some other instruments, for example. So looking into all the other options, um, instead of just assuming, you know, it's, it's very high redshift based on its colors, right? Trying to refute all the other possibilities as, as much as possible. And then of course, getting a spectrum when you can is the best. You, uh, you mentioned ALMA as a wonderful complementary uh, observational tool to JWST because it's incredibly sensitive and it's incredibly high resolution, but over a longer wavelength range. Its, its wavelength range falls into what, what most of us would consider either microwave or radio wavelengths as opposed to near and mid infrared wavelengths that JWST is sensitive to. Are there some other observatories that either exist today or are going to be coming online in the relatively near future that you also think have the power to be incredibly complementary to JWST in terms of what they'll be able to teach us about these, these objects that 
you know, maybe are right at the limit of what JWST can reveal. And there is another telescope called Noema in the Northern Hemisphere. And so it's very much like Alma, um, just observes a different part of the sky. And so that's also being used to try to study some of these high redshift candidates. Um, there are attempts to get spectroscopy from our big ground-based optical telescopes like Keck and VLT. And that's really, really hard, except for the very brightest, you know, most extreme ones. Uh, and then, you know, there's a lot of looking forward to the next generation of instruments and telescopes um, like the ELTs, which will uh, be very large and collect a lot of light and potentially be able to see some of the really faint galaxies. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about these ELTs because two of them in particular, the Giant Magellan Telescope uh, and the EELT, the European Extremely Large Telescope, uh, they're going to be respectively 25 and 39 meters in diameter. And for comparison, the largest ground-based optical telescopes we have today are more like 11 or 12 meters in diameter. So we're talking about a huge factor, almost an order of magnitude improvement in terms of light gathering power and more than double, maybe even more than triple for the EELT, the resolution of our current best ground-based telescopes. Um, for example, when we were taking images with Hubble of these distant objects, when that was our best tool, the ground-based imaging we had from Keck and VLT and Subaru and Gemini and some of these other observatories, um, they were capable of doing spectroscopic confirmation exquisitely. Do you think these... Um, do you think these upcoming ground-based missions are going to be able to reveal spectral details that maybe even are superior in some ways to what JWST can do? In some ways, they do have the potential to be superior because they're much larger telescopes, so they'll collect so much more light. Uh, they are on the ground, so we have the atmosphere to contend with. So that's always tricky, especially in the near infrared. Um, but there's, I think, the potential to see really faint signatures of distant galaxies. That's that's really interesting. And that's something that I, I hope people listening can appreciate is that um, JWST is one of a kind and it can't do everything at once for everybody. You know, we just recently passed the end of JWST proposal season. And although congratulations to everyone who was awarded proposal time, observing time for what they wanted to study, there were so many really, truly excellent proposals that just didn't get chosen because there isn't enough time to go around. And one of the things I really foresee happening is things that you can do from the ground that don't require JWST, where JWST would be the only observatory capable of seeing what they want to see. If you can do some of these things from the ground, all of a sudden that opens up the possibility of saying, oh, well, that means we can do this other science. Other people can get to study their objects, look at their region of the sky, 
do the type of science they want to do that JWST is uniquely suited for without having to spend all of this expensive telescope time doing something that now you can do from, from the ground. Do you think having complementary observatories like that can help sort of not only, you know, reveal details that are very difficult to see otherwise, but that they can better serve the community by providing better access to the flagship observatories if we can sort of offload some of what JWST can today uniquely do to some ground-based telescopes? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the difficulties is that the amount of science people want to do with JWST and the amount of time available um, don't match up, right? There's a lot more science that people want than is possible to fit in a given year of observing time. And so doing as much as possible from the ground with complementary facilities is going to be really important and essential because there's some things that only those telescopes can answer. You know, one of the one of the really big overarching science goals of JWST, um, I like to say that Hubble was the observatory that showed us what the universe looked like. Uh, JWST is going to be the telescope that shows us how the universe grew up. Right? We can see things earlier. We can see early details. Uh, far superior to what we've ever been able to see with any previous observatory, including Hubble. And one of the biggest mysteries going into the JWST era has been what we call the epic of reionization, where the universe went from being filled with this neutral matter and only having small populations of stars and galaxies to being a star and galaxy rich transparent universe that doesn't have neutral intergalactic matter there to block the light traveling through it anymore. Uh, would you say, Jehan, that there are already profound lessons that we've learned about this epoch of reionization, and can you share some of them with us? I mean, all of these early galaxies that we've been talking about have been teaching us a lot about this time period, about the epic of reionization. You know, and some of the open questions are, you know, what kinds of galaxies drove it, right? Is it the, the high mass galaxies or the low mass galaxies? What types of stars? Um, and then there's a question of whether AGN or active black holes that are r rapidly growing are playing a role. Um, and these are these are things things we still don't know yet. Um, and then I think one of the big things that JWST will really teach us is not only what types of galaxies are responsible for driving it, um, but what are the physical scales that reionization happened on. And how does that relate to the overall large-scale environment that we were talking about earlier? That's really fascinating. You know, one of the things I know we're all looking forward to is the full release of Cosmos Web uh, and this sort of large area view of the universe that we're going to get with, with JWST's eyes and JWST technology. Um, is there anything that you are either hoping to find or expecting to find or think there's a chance you might find in 
a survey this large and this deep with unprecedented technology? I mean, I think, well, I know we're going to find thousands of galaxies in the epoch of reionization. So that's a scale, you know, much, much larger than any of the surveys are able to do. Um, but we'll be able to connect those galaxies to their local environment and map out the potential scale of the reionization bubbles. And that'll give us a lot of information about the types of galaxies that really were able to drive reionization early on in the universe's history. That's that's so fascinating. And, and that's going to provide us with such important data that's going to help us answer some of those big questions about how the universe grew up. Jehan, I want to thank you so much for a wide-ranging and fascinating discussion uh, and for allowing me to ask you such deep questions about the young early universe as it's growing up, uh, even some questions that we don't yet have answers to. Before we break and close out this program, I want to give you a chance uh, to sort of share with our listeners any final messages or thoughts you may have for them. I think, I think the big one is that, you know, there have been many of us that have spent our entire career waiting for this telescope to launch um, and thinking about what we would do with it. And so it's amazing to now be able to use data from it. Um, but really, you know, the vast majority of the work and the majority of the discoveries going forward are really being driven by the younger generation, right? The students and postdocs that are really digging into the data. Uh, and so I'm really excited to see what they find and where this takes them in their careers. And hopefully a telescope like JWST is going to bring more people into astronomy that otherwise might not have been. You know, it's amazing what having something inspirational like JWST, its images, and these unprecedented views of the universe can do, not just from a scientific perspective, but from a civilization perspective as well. These are things that we're capable of, and these are discoveries that are going to inspire the current and next generation of astronomers to push forward in their careers, in their lives, and explore previously unexplored frontiers that really last generation's astronomers could only have dreamed of. Thank you to Dr. Jehan Kartaltepe of the Rochester Institute of Technology uh, for joining us on this podcast. Thanks again to our sponsor, Avenues The World School, a component of Avenues Online, for sponsoring us. And thank you to all of you who are listening out there and doing everything you can to stay curious and learn about the universe as much as you can. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters, and I would like to personally shout out and call out everyone who supports us at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to... Chad Marler, Jeff Bonwick, Lainey Chuist, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Chikutas, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Patternship, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, C. Green Mango, Stefan Bernego, William Blair, Dominic Turpin, Amira Sosnick, Andy and Wall, Benish Tech LLC, Brian Terry, David Charney, David Hibbets, David Wallach, George Church, Hirolamo Castaldo, James Franklin, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Kilia Opu, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, 
Pedro Texera, Ralpho Wojciechuk, Randall Slimak, Rick DeWitt, Ron Shipman, Sean Foley, Steve Guderian, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanek, Arnulfo Zepeda, Ben Head, Bob Shire, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Cameron Sowards, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Diana Nevins, Dwayne Williams, Eric Zetterbaum, Flo, Fraser Kane, Glenn McDavid, Ira Cohen, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nass, James Page, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Catherine S., Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bergeron, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Matt Reno, Michael Hall, Michael Prochoda, Michael Savuto, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Nick Winland, Owen Mann, Pam Harris, Paul Lester, Pavel Zuzelski, Phil Hallenborg, Philip Francis, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Ron Lyle, Rushin Shah, Steve Nordhoff, Stuart Lending, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Wayne Pierkarski, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vanden Heuvel, and Youngko S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. Bang.